You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, we interview Robin Wildman of Broad Rock Elementary School about how she integrated nonviolence into her classroom and inspired parents, teachers, and students to work together to create the nation's first nonviolent public school. Along with learning how to solve conflict is teaching students the reason why we should solve conflict. It's not just about having skills to solve conflict, it's understanding that we're all connected and we're all part of the same community, and in order to make the community function, we need to be able to process conflict together. And I think that if people connected those two pieces in their classrooms, then their classrooms would be peaceful communities. Before you with her hands on her hips She said, I'll accept nothing Loving words from your lips She said, everything changes With conviction like this I need you to be good Right now I need you to be good, good And how I need you to feel love Right now Hello, this is Sherry Mitchell For Love and Revolution Radio Aguanu, Golasikawolpa, welcoming greetings to you in my native language. I'm coming to you from the snowy banks of the Penobscot River here in the Donland in the beautiful state of Maine. I'm joined today by my incredibly brilliant and whimsical co-host, Miss Rivera Sun. Hello, Rivera. Well, thank you, Sherry. I'm sure I can live up to the whimsical part and will definitely try for the brilliant as usual. It's Quite lovely out here in Taos, New Mexico. The bull snakes are waking up and spring is here. And I'm interested in today's conversation on a very deep and personal level. We're going to speak with Robin Wildman, who has helped to start a nonviolence program in her public school of Broad Rock Elementary. She's been a public school teacher for 25 years and for the last 15 years, a nonviolence trainer for teachers and students. Uh, She likes to work with her organic vegetable garden on the side, too, which I can appreciate since that's one of my joys. And she has several children and will soon be a grandmother. So welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you. Robin, we're very excited to have you here today because, as you know, nonviolence is a deep passion and commitment to both Rivera and I. And I'm very interested to learn how you got started on this pathway in your school. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Well, I'm going to start with my own personal journey to nonviolence and then morph into my professional journey. About 15 years ago, I was teaching in a fifth grade classroom and I was co-teaching with the police department in my town. And it was a program called Community Works. And we were teaching our students about how to keep their communities safe. And I would team with a police officer to do that. And one day a guest entered my classroom 
and his name was Dr. Bernard Lafayette, Jr. Unbeknownst to me at the time, Dr. Lafayette had been a close colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And then the students started to ask Dr. Lafayette some questions about his work and wanted him to return to our classroom, which he did uh, many times. He ended up coming almost once a week, and we took the students to Alabama and Georgia on a civil rights tour um, when school let out in June of 2001. The students raised $20,000 to be able to go on the trip with their parents. Before they were able to go on the trip, Dr. Lafayette trained the students and myself and the parents in Dr. King's principles of nonviolence so that they could better appreciate the things that they were about to see with respect to the American civil rights movements in the South. And so that was the beginning of my own personal journey and thinking about a different kind of way to approach my teaching and the students in my classroom. So once that had happened, I came back from the trip and thought that I could write a teaching manual for teachers on how they could also teach their students the concepts of nonviolence and strategies of nonviolence based on Dr. King's work. So I took a manual that Bernard Lafayette had written himself that he used in his trainings with adults and kind of rewrote it so that it would be applicable to people who were teachers of any age child. Um, and began, then I began doing some teacher trainings and just started implementing it in my own classroom. And that was 15 years ago. I think it's really incredible that you're doing this work in the public school system, that this isn't a Waldorf or Montessori school or a private or a charter school. This is right in our public school system. What are some of the ways that this nonviolence curriculum shows up tangibly in the classroom and in the school? So the the actual training is based on on some writing that Dr. King had done when he had when he wrote his first book called Stride Toward Freedom. And there's a chapter in that book called Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. He discusses his own journey to nonviolence. And in that chapter, he outlines six principles of nonviolence. And we use those in our teaching to for our students. So the, the training that my students go through is based on the six principles that Dr. King wrote about, as well as six steps that we use to solve conflict nonviolently. So what I do is the very first day of school when the students walk in the room and they've learned how to open their lockers and I take attendance, I start doing their nonviolence training on the first day of school. And I go through all the different lessons every single day. In the beginning of school, it takes about two to three weeks to lay that foundation because the basic notion is that we are together in a classroom to create a peaceful community within that classroom so that we are all feeling accepted and loved and safe. And by doing so, it frees up the students to 
do their work and to get along and to know how to solve their conflicts when they come up rather than stewing about conflicts when they arise and then their focus is off of their work and on the conflict. So um, I had done that for probably 10 years and then I was moved to a new school where I'm at right now and it's a grade 5 elementary school and a grade 6 middle school within one building. People there knew what I had been doing, and some of my colleagues approached me to see if they could learn also about nonviolence, and I started the first training at my school last fall. We had 15 staff members, the administrators, the nurse, the art teacher, the music teacher, teacher assistants all came to learn how to teach their students about nonviolence, and it morphed from there and grew bigger. I've thus trained 36 staff people at my school, and we have a big nonviolence committee that's working on different ways to change the culture and climate at our school because our goal is to have a nonviolent school, and it's a public school. That's really amazing. There's one thing that I picked up in one of the articles that I had read on your work, which is phenomenal, by the way, that really interests me because it's something that I teach also in my nonviolence workshops based on this principle of interest convergence that um, Derek Bell talked about back during the civil rights movement. One of the things that you look for is a way to find the truth in your opponent's position so that you can devise a reconciliation plan as part of the resolution of conflict. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that process of finding the truth in your opponent's position. Okay, sure. Um, In that same chapter that Dr. King wrote, he, he talked a lot about different philosophers that he investigated himself. And one of them was a man named George Hegel, who, who is the person that we've pulled this truth finding from, from his own philosophies. And it's something that I teach the students. And it's pretty basic. We, when we're in a conflict, already know what we need or want but it is most important to find out what your opponent needs and wants in a conflict because we, we're trying to teach not just the kids but also the staff to take the, the uh, focus off of yourself. You already know what you want. Find out what the other person needs or wants and then find a way to synthesize those two truths together so that you can come up with a solution to the problem that satisfies everybody. And we call that a win-win solution. So that um, sometimes it might be a compromise, but it's not always a compromise. We work hard to teach students not to give up what they really want because some students do have that type of a personality. That is really important to honor everybody's truth that's, that's in a conflict. And then the way that we do that is to use some of the steps that I mentioned before. One of the steps is to gather information. That's the first thing that you do. Um, I tell the kids to doubt their first impression and gather the facts. Find out as much as you can so that you can educate yourself and other people, which is step two. And then you can decide how you would like to proceed with the solution to the conflict. On our last Love and Revolution radio show, we interviewed Hart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg of the 
River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, and they were speaking a little bit about one of the problems they've encountered in their schools in Gainesville, Florida, is that when a student acts up or misbehaves, they're taken out of the classroom and they're given detention or suspension, um, and then there is no reintegrative process after that uh, shaming and shunning that goes on within the typical way that we handle conflict in schools. If a child has a conflict arise uh, within the context of your school, what happens with that child? What is the process of working through that conflict? I remember in your interview with Peace Paradigm Radio, you spoke a little bit about the peace liaisons, I believe, who Mm -hmm. would go in and speak with the child who was sitting in a detention room or wherever it is. What happens in, in those cases? So in the, in the extreme cases where we um, have deemed it necessary to remove a student from the community, um, in the rare case that that does happen, we have a schedule that teachers have signed up to volunteer for. And if it's a Wednesday, we go down the schedule and we see, oh, three, three peace coaches, we call them, have signed up to go in and speak with the student. Um, so when it's your scheduled time, you, you will go in and we have a form that the peace coaches fill out and we first we let the student know that we care about them and that's why we're there to talk with them. We ask them if they'd like to talk about the conflict. Um, we can help them start the reconciliation process and there's a form that they can fill out. So we have four steps for reconciliation. Um, The student needs to be able to acknowledge the truth, figure out a way to show that they're sorry and repair the relationship that they've, the relationships that they have harmed, and then to seek forgiveness and justice for the people involved. So we just basically go in and, and talk to the students about how they can approach that and help them through that and then I might leave and another peace coach comes in and checks in to see how the plan is coming along. In the meantime, there's a substitute teacher in the room and that person has heard all the conversations so they can reinforce what we've said. And then the assistant principal follows through with the reconciliation plan and makes sure that all the students are pulled back together so that the student who has done the harm has the opportunity to repair that relationship and hopefully will be forgiven and can re-enter back into the community. So it's really a system that I've thought about for a long time and then with support from people at my school, we've figured out a way to make it work and this is the first year that we've started this. That really strikes me because I, as you may or may not know, I'm an attorney and I work primarily on indigenous rights issues, but I also work on a broader scale on civil rights issues as well. And one of the cases that I'm working on involves segregation within the prison system. And as we all know, um, segregation is not an effective tool for addressing problematic behaviors. And so here you're providing an opportunity for someone who has been removed from the student body, assumably for protection purposes and to kind of de-escalate the situation. You're giving them an opportunity to do some reconciliation. Now, what I'm wondering about is 
are there steps that are taken to address the underlying cause of that behavior? Because what we most frequently find is that there's an underlying cause that has caused disharmony within the individual that has created this imbalance that often leads to problematic behavior. And in order for them to be fully reintegrated into the larger community, that underlying behavior needs to be addressed over time. Do you have processes for dealing with those types of things in the long term? Yes. So we have um, we have mental health support at our school. And if that is the case, some you know, sometimes students do things and it's not it's not part of their everyday personality. Maybe we had a case of theft um, and it was an isolated incident that was reconciled and that was the end of it. But the students that you're referring to, yes, we would seek mental health help as in addition to this reconciliation process. So I'm thinking about one student that we've had twice now who has done the same thing twice in two different settings and working with that individual because there's a lot of underlying issues there. But the positive thing that's coming out of it is that he, when I asked him, why, why do you think I'm here talking to you? He said to me, because I'm in trouble. And I said, no, because I care about you. His face, he was, it was like disbelief on his face that here I am, I'm in trouble in his mind, but somebody still cares about me. And, and that's the, that's the impression we're trying to, to give to the students at my school. No matter what you do, you are part of our community and we will work with you and with lots of people to help you continue to be a part of the community. We don't shun anybody out of the community. And that goes for anything that happens within just an individual's classroom as well. Robin, I'm wondering, at the school you taught at before, were you a lone teacher in doing this nonviolence work within your classroom? Um, And is it a new shift to have an entire school? Uh, You said 30 teachers, I believe, trained in doing this nonviolence work and actually creating a committee to create a nonviolence school. What is the difference between those situations in terms of building a culture really rooted in nonviolence? The previous school I was at for 19 years, everybody was extremely supportive. My principal was extremely supportive. We actually did a two-day training for staff at the school. Um, The principal would use some of the language when she spoke with the kids. My students actually trained all the students in the school. We had teams that would go into each classroom once a month to do the trainings and we know that the best way to learn yourself is to teach somebody else. So it was beneficial to my students as well as all the other students in the school. So that was a way from, that was the best way I knew at the time to spread the love, so to speak, of nonviolence. And this is a, is a new shift for me at, at my new school at Broad Rock school because it is a it is a bottom up initiative. Um, it wasn't a directive from coming up above. It was something that the people wanted themselves. And the beauty of it was after the first training was completed, and people said, "Well, we want 
how do we do this in our school? We want this to be a nonviolent school. I said, well, what do you think the next step is? And they said, we need more people trained. And they went out and recruited to continue this training to get more people involved. So after I've done four trainings with 36 total people. And the fact that not all the teachers have come doesn't mean that they're not interested or buying into the work that we're doing. The nonviolence committee is open to everybody, whether they've been trained or not. My principal, she announces every day on the loudspeaker one of Dr. King's six principles and changes it each month so that the kids are thinking about that. She'll say, instead of doing a moment of silence like most schools do, we say, set an intention today, think about principle number one, nonviolence is a way of life for brave people. And she'll, she'll talk about the principles that way. We do a monthly assembly where every month we have a theme, a nonviolent theme for one of our assemblies for the students. So like I said, it's kind of opened up a whole new world for me and different possibilities, which is why I was able to ask that the in-school suspension model be changed this year. I want to ask you about the correlation between your initial entry into this work and where you are today. My understanding is that students traveled to some of these places significant to the civil rights movement. When they experienced those things, in your opinion, were they able to come back to their own communities and to examine their own lives and the things that were happening in their communities and in the larger world around them with the experiences that they had learned about through the civil rights movement and kind of carry that forward and bring those principles not only into their classroom setting, but into their lives in a larger way? Well, yes, it's interesting that you ask that because I am in contact with a lot of the same students even today. Um, we had such a great experience together. We really bonded almost like a family. And I've asked some of them most recently, last summer, we got together. We had a little reunion with Dr. Lafayette. He was up in Rhode Island. And I was asking them what they remembered from fifth grade because those children are 23 years old now. And I wonder how much does anybody remember from one year of their life in fifth grade? And they remember a lot more than I remembered, actually, and that it did impact their life at the time and even today and the way they look at people, people who are different from them, how they respond to conflict. It was really heartwarming for me to hear that because up until this year, I was thinking, oh, I only have 180 days with these children. Is this going to even make an impression or matter? And I know that it does. And now that the school is a two, this is a two-year school, they will have two years of training. So next year, this group will be going into their second year of nonviolence training. So that'll be, we're going to be evaluating how things are going with the help from the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies at the University of Rhode Island. Robin, I'm curious, uh, did any of these students relate to you what the experience was like going from uh, your programs and from a school that centers on nonviolence? Or 
even a school that has more of a nonviolence influence into their next level of education and subsequent levels. I'm just curious, was it a difficult experience or was it an experience where they could integrate some of the knowledge that they had into a, a situation that pro- most likely probably didn't have that same sort of focus? Yeah, I think they I think they tried. I think it was difficult for them because um first of all there were only 24 of them and then they filtered into a a bigger school with lots of other kids and they weren't together as a as a unit anymore. I think that's the dream that I have is that that doesn't happen that it continues on all the way through so that they have not just them each other to support them, but other educators as well, because we know that students of this age, my students are 10 and 11 years old, they need adults to help them process conflict, whether they're trained in nonviolence or not. I'm, I'm their mentor, and I help them do that, just like I help them do their math. So we, what we need moving forward are more schools and more teachers willing to take this on and see the value of it. I was going to ask something very similar to that question. I was, I have two questions now. One is, do you have any direct experience or stories of students that have carried that into their next school? One of the things that I found in doing this work is that some of the students that we had worked with actually created programs on their own in the new schools that they were going to. Um, So I'd like to hear if you have any experiences with that. The second question is, I'm wondering, as a teacher for 24 years, there are a lot of politics involved in academia and the school system in general. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any dramatic changes in the school environment overall amongst the staff as a result of them participating in these type of programs? So I'll respond to the first question. You kind of lose track. I was the top grade in my school and kind of lost track of the kids as they went to the next school. So I know that the year after the year that we came back from the trip, I did a peace club for the same kids at their next school. It was really hard for me to get to that school. My principal was letting me leave early to get there because we got out later, and just the logistics were really difficult. And then I did a teacher training, and there was a teacher at that school who came to the training, and she started the peace club there. So there was a continuum. And then as far as your second question... Yes, and I what I've noticed, well, first of all, I always seem to be the person that people would come to with their problems, first because I'm a union rep, so that was, you know, obvious, but also just other kinds of problems, and I think they knew that I could give them some good advice. But now we can all talk about things together and use the steps that we know to solve our conflicts. People are less likely to ignore conflict or stew about a conflict or talk about people behind their backs. I don't see any of that pettiness. It's it's right out there in the open, and if we have problems with each other, we can talk about them, and we are respectful of each other in that way. 
I'm curious about the curriculum. If someone is listening, whether they're a parent or maybe a teacher themselves, or they're in a teacher training program at a college or a university, or maybe they're even a peace and justice studies student who's really getting fired up about this idea of helping to broaden this and implement nonviolence in the schools. Is there a way they can read about this curriculum or a place that they can get training in this? Yes, so I'm going to be doing a summer teacher training this summer in Rhode Island. If anybody wants to travel here, um, they can email me at robinewildman at gmail.com for information. I can send that out to people. Um, the manual that I wrote is kind of, it's, it would not be easy for somebody to understand if they didn't go through the training because the the material and information is on paper, but then when you come to the training, there's just so much more information given. So yeah, so the training is open to anybody who works with children, any age. And we'll be back after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly nonviolence interview. We where are our hearts? And I say, where are our minds? And where are our bodies? Are we really in them? This week, during our weekly nonviolence interlude, we're going to cover two subjects. First, we're going to talk about the six principles of Kingian nonviolence, and then we're going to talk a little bit about a little-known contribution to the field of nonviolence from the Irish. First up, let's look at the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. We have covered them before in our nonviolence interlude, but since Robin Wildman has been speaking so much about them, we thought it'd be good just to review them one right after another. The first principle of Kingian nonviolence is that nonviolence is a way of life for brave people. It is neither passive nor weak, nor cowardly nor inaction. Nonviolence means active nonviolent resistance to injustice. Principle 2 states that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. In Principle 3, it states that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Principle 4 of King in Nonviolence says that nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform, and nonviolence accepts suffering without retaliation. Principle 5 of King in Nonviolence says that nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists violence of the spirit as well as of the body. Nonviolent love is spontaneous, unmotivated, unselfish, and creative. The last principle of Kingian nonviolence, Principle 6, states that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. The other thing we thought we'd cover during this week's nonviolence interlude is a little-known bit of Irish history, which is their contribution to the field of nonviolent struggle. While we often hear about the violent struggles of the Irish, we don't always hear about the nonviolent struggles, of which they have a great long history of. But since St. Patrick's Day is just around the corner while this show is airing, and we know many of you might be headed to pubs with shamrocks pinned to your jackets to celebrate all things Irish, there's one contribution from Ireland that bears a toast or two, and that is the boycott. 
Coined in 1880 during the Irish Land Wars, the phrase refers to Captain Charles Boycott, who was a land agent for Lord Erne. It was a rough year, and the harvest had been poor, and the tenants of Lord Erne had petitioned for a 25% rent reduction due to hardship. It had been refused. When Captain Charles Boycott arrived to, to evict 11 tenant farmers, the outraged rest of the community began a social ostracization campaign, shunning the captain, refusing to help harvest his crops, and non-cooperating with his eviction efforts. The term caught on, and pretty soon people were starting to say, oh, we'll do like we did to boycott. We'll boycott him. The Irish author George Moore reported that, like a comet, the verb boycott appeared. And within six weeks, newspapers as far away as New York City were using the term. Nowadays, we can tell that there is hardly a nonviolent movement around the world out of hundreds of case studies that has not used some form of a boycott. So, this St. Patrick's Day, while you're celebrating leprechauns and shamrocks, don't forget to lift the glass and raise a toast to one of Ireland's greatest contributions to a more just and equitable world, the boycott. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. Our featured music this week is Shall We Rise? Occupy! by Diane Patterson from her Build a Bridge CD. You can find her wonderful music at www.dianepatterson.org. And now let's return to our conversation with Robin Wildman about nonviolence education in our public schools and where all of us can get training in nonviolence. These principles can carry over into all settings, not just school settings, but I think that they really carry over into work settings, you know, organizational settings, community settings, certainly into small municipal local governments, broader scale governments. We do this work on a small scale and on a large scale. And these principles of nonviolence actually translate into any particular setting. So I would encourage folks who not only are school teachers, but individuals who are part of any organizational structure to attend the training, because I'm sure that there are valuable skills that they'd be able to pick up and carry back into their workplace or their communities that would benefit all the people that they're working with. That's right. So I would say to people, um, if they were interested in a training in that respect, that the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies has a summer institute that starts in June, and that might be a good direction for them to go in. The training that I'm going to be doing in July is going to focus particularly, particularly on people who work in school settings um, with, with youth. That's that's my passion, and that's where I gear my information from, um, too. So there are two options, actually, for people. And the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies has a website that they can go on also to look at that information. And that's where I actually was trained by Dr. Lafayette in 2001. So one of the organizations that I work with is called Campaign Nonviolence. It's a movement to mainstream nonviolence and to implement a culture that's rooted in it, transforming the culture that we live in, which is rooted in systems of violence and domination, uh, to go through systematically and transform every pillar and component of 
the war and domination, the entertainment industry, which is addicted to violence, the punitive justice system to restorative justice, the you know, the death care system to an actual health care system, sustainable energy from the fossil fuel destructive energy systems. The list goes on and on. The But we're one of the reasons we're really excited to encounter you and your work is that K through 12 nonviolence education has long been a pillar of this vision of a nonviolent world. And for those listeners who don't know, we are going to have Robin come on the Campaign Nonviolence National Conference call on March 29th and speak more about her experiences. And uh, you can find the information about that call at www.campaignnonviolence.org. Robin, my question for you, however, is in transforming this culture of violence that we live in into a culture rooted in nonviolence, it's very clear how the work that you're doing in this in your classrooms and in your schools plays such a pivotal role. I'm wondering about other components of it. One is about history. We're taught history as a, a lineage of wars, like a long string of wars, one after another. Mm-hmm. Um, have you worked with Uh, any of the history curriculum to make sure that we're teaching the very vibrant and robust nonviolent history uh, of the world and of our own country. Part of our teaching in the non-Kingian, we call it Kingian nonviolence, which is Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence. We teach the four civil rights movements that Dr. King participated in, Montgomery, Freedom Rides, Birmingham, and Selma, so that the students aren't just being trained in nonviolence, but they understand how nonviolence works and when did it work and how can it work today so that they get that historical perspective. So we do quite a bit. Um, We also connect that to our curriculum standards. So if you think about reading a book, every book has a conflict, right? And then we look at the conflict with the lens of nonviolence. So if the conflict was not solved nonviolently, we ask the kids, how, how would we solve this nonviolently? The character in this book solved it this way. What are your decisions? How could you do this? And often when we're, we are um, talking about the book's theme, a lot of times my students will write down one of the principles as as the theme. So one of one of our principles is know and do what is right, even if it is difficult. And somebody might use that as the theme of the story. So it's not just in the historical perspective, but also in literature. And I am fortunate that I teach American history, but I teach American history through a different lens than a lot of people, I think. I don't teach war. Um, it's not something that I think kids need to hear about any more than they already do. If I'm teaching about, say, Native American history, I teach about the culture and we go deep into the culture of of different Native peoples. If I'm teaching about exploration, let's say I'm teaching about Columbus, we teach about the Taino people's culture and the, the harm that was done to them via violence. So we try and teach more of a true history of America rather than a European view of history in America, if that makes sense, and always with the lens of nonviolence. So everything we think about in the academic piece of our day 
has to do also with nonviolence. So it's a way for students to take the information they've learned and actually think about it and connect it to other pieces of their education. So it's not an isolated subject. It's a it's a subject that comes up all the time. It's it's our way of life in our classroom. That's really beautiful. It's an immersion, holistic type teaching that has proven to be so much more effective than these isolated lessons when we're able to connect everything together. The mind processes it differently and we're able to understand it far more deeply. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about today is this philosophy, this idea in Kingian nonviolence of the beloved community, where Mm -hmm. everyone is welcomed to come in and have the ability to share in the prosperity of the world. There's so much inequity and such incredible division that has really deepened and expanded in the last decade in this country in regard to division of wealth. And I'm wondering if you ever have the opportunity to address that subject matter with your students or are they too young? And, you know, is there a way to bring that discussion into this to kind of get them thinking about how can we creatively resolve this by making sure that everybody's included to share in that prosperity? I'm really curious to know if you have any of those discussions. Um, sure, we do. I think that some, what's important for students when they're learning about Kenyan nonviolence is to understand that there's a value system attached to this, and those are our principles. But above those principles is love. And Dr. King wrote extensively about this type of love called agape, and that's just the love of people, not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to like somebody or like what they're doing, but we love people because we believe in their ability to be the best people that they can be, even if they're not behaving that way now. And so that's the overarching idea that we teach the kids about agape. And by doing that, we can use that notion in a lot of different discussions, and the students themselves will bring that up. In fact, today I got a note from a student. I have a box in my room. It's called the Agape Box. So students have conflicts that they are they want to keep private. They put a note in the box, and then I read the notes, and we process the conflict. And one of the notes on the outside said Agape. And on the inside, it was a, a boy who had a conflict with a girl, but he wanted me to be sure to know that this was a note written under the lens of agape, that he wasn't angry at the student. He he just wanted the conflict addressed and solved. So that idea of the beloved community is ever-present, and it's one of our principles. Principle two, the beloved community is the goal for the future. It's something we're always working on. I love this idea of the agape box and I just when you as soon as you said it I could imagine these in all of our communities and the process of talking through a conflict with a degree of anonymity as well the idea that we are so creative as communities and so wise in the depths of our collective souls uh, and our shared experiences that 
there's a way in which this agape box is really helping the students to tap that collective wisdom that they already have about how to resolve conflicts and present a different vision than perhaps the two or three or four people who are already engaged heatedly in the conflict already. I think that's just a beautiful model and kind of parallel to what you're doing with the literature about re-envisioning the plot lines that are rooted in violence to how they might have mm-hmm. used conflict resolution and nonviolence to solve that. One of the hats that I wear is that I'm a novelist, and that was actually one of the main goals of writing the Dandelion Insurrection, which posits a nonviolent movement for change in a fictional United States. But the real goal that I set out with as a novelist is to challenge this culture of violence and our false notion that violence is the best way to resolve our conflicts and to show dramatically that nonviolent action in real life is proving itself over and over again to be a much better form of conflict resolution than violence and warfare and to demonstrate tangibly and strategically how it might work in our situations. So the work that you're doing with your students is so creative and so uh, inspiring in the way that it bridges the re-envisioning of the fictional stories or the understanding of a fictional story as through the lens of nonviolence, mm-hmm. and then also doing that collectively in the classroom. I find that very, very inspiring. I wanted to ask you uh, about any ideas you might have for the expansion of this curriculum, you teach in elementary school up to the beginning of middle school. What might be some ideas around uh, middle high school types of curriculum around nonviolence? Yes, yeah, so the work can continue from preschool all the way up to college and beyond, obviously. And it's just really a matter of teachers knowing the students that that are before them. And then the teacher receives the training and they get the information and they take that information just like I did when I learned it. And, And they say, okay, here's my information. How can I use this in my classroom? What can this look like to my particular population of students that are in front of me? So if I'm a math teacher... How how would this look in my class? Well, I know that most teachers have students work in groups. And when you work in a group, conflicts arise. So that's a perfect way to infiltrate nonviolence into your classroom. What is it that we do in our classroom when we have conflicts in our group? And my kids know what to do because they have the tools. So that I think that this this curriculum... And it's definitely beyond a curriculum. It's a way of life. can work in any setting, obviously, but is much needed in a school with students, as you said, who are subjected to so many violent things in their lives. And we do talk about that a lot. And I tell the students, you know, if they ask me, oh, are we going to learn about World War II? And I'll just respond and say, this is a nonviolent classroom. So... We're going to learn about the Holocaust and what happened to people and why people acted the way they did and how people responded and who stood up for justice. That's what we're going to learn about. I also was very struck by your comment about the agape box. When my daughter was a teenager, we had some conflict 
in the home, as you can imagine. (laughs) And one of the things that we did was we created a box together. We decorated it and made it shiny and fancy and discussed the fact that when we were really angry with each other, we were going to say things that were unkind and that we didn't mean. And instead, we would write down our gripes against one another, and we would put them in the box. And when we had both calmed down, we would look at those and talk about them together. And what I found was that within a very short period of time, she no longer had to write down her gripe and put it in the box. She was able to just go off on her own and then come back to me when she was ready and start discussing those things utilizing those skills that she had picked up through that process. Now, I'm wondering, with the students that you work with, how long does it generally take of them being prompted through this process before they start picking up those skills and using them as a matter of course, kind of automatically, Mm -hmm. without having to be guided through a process? The first thing that typically has to happen is that the language that we use needs to be solidified so that they know. For example, we teach the three levels of conflict. So it's kind of like what you were talking about. What level am I at? Am I at a normal level? Am I pervasive where I can cause emotional harm to somebody? Or am I overt when I'm causing physical harm to somebody? And in fact, I just had a parent of one of my students tell me that he said to his sister the other day, that's pervasive. So now you know Now you know when someone is repeating that language that they're understanding in context what that means or what that might look like. And I would say it's different for every child. Some students come from violent homes where this is opposite of what they've learned from their own families. And some students come from families who are who practice nonviolence. So it's different for every child. I still, at this age, like to help them if they need help solving conflicts. But I also give them the option to say, okay, what do you think you can do? Sounds great. Sounds like a plan. Go off and do it. Come back and let me know how, how it went for you. So I'm kind of just the person they would check in with afterwards. Sometimes the student does it themselves and they'll tell me what they did after the fact and I didn't even know there was a conflict. So that's a good thing too. So it kind of varies based on the the, chi- the individual child. Sometimes I've had a whole class. We have an agape circle, which when there's something really big that's impacting most of us in the classroom or all of us in the classroom, then we'll sit in the agape circle and we'll problem solve together. One of the things that many teachers are concerned about is time and having time for these curriculum modules is it's Mm -hmm. often framed, although you're approaching it as an integrated way of life. How do you find the time to do this with the curriculum that you're already expected to teach? The overburdened curriculum, what I tell people is you will save time by doing this because you will spend less time on discipline, less time on classroom management, and more time teaching if you invest two to three weeks. I do maybe 45 minutes a day, half hour sometimes, for two to three weeks every single day. And then it's just about reinforcing it. So I would rather invest the time in nonviolence and I gain back time. That's one of the reasons why 
teachers came and asked me if I would do a training for them because they heard me talk about things that were going on in my classroom just like that. I would say things like, oh, well, we don't really have to waste too much time on that kind of thing because we have a process to work on our conflicts and it's sometimes it takes extra time to solve a conflict and you have to take the time so you can gain the time. One of the things I'm wondering about based on this last comment that you just made is this agape circle. Mm -hmm. Do you ever take the time to bring the students into the agape circle if there's something going on in the world that everybody's talking about, something on the news that might be disturbing to them, distressing to them, to help them process some of those things and help them to kind of find a peaceful place with dealing with some of this larger conflict that's going on in the world, or do you strictly keep it to the conflicts that they're experiencing within the school? I have a, I have on a few occasions, but we we need to be mindful that these are ten year old children, and a lot of the parents don't let their kids watch the news. Some believe it or not. Some of the kids still don't know what's going on in the world, which I think is a good thing at 10 years old. We like to keep them innocent and young while we can. If kids come in and start talking about things, then we would stop absolutely and and talk about the concerns that they have. So I I don't bring the violent things into the classroom. I think that they get enough of that outside of the classroom but I would talk about things that come up if they brought them up. And again, don't forget, this is a public school, so I have to be mindful of what's good for everybody. (laughs) I can imagine that there's a a really a good challenge in there around respecting differences, respecting different politics, respecting different worldviews. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. when we have the news sources that we have, we have extremely varied worldviews that exist within our parents, our teachers, our students. And I, I like Sherry's idea, though. I, I'd be really interested to see how that might get implemented, especially as students get older and they're having to pay attention to the world. I remember hearing a story about a young woman who uh, went to one of the Eric Garner uh, protests with Black Lives Matter and then came back to her private school and none of her student friends had any idea of what was going on and just how difficult that was for her to integrate those two understandings. So I I think there's probably a place for it. Absolutely. I I mean, I would... I would venture to say that depending on where the school is, you might have different kinds of conversations, right? So I'm presently I'm doing a teacher training at a, an elementary school in the city in Rhode Island in Providence. And in that neighborhood comes different kinds of issues than we might have down in my neighborhood. And those kinds of conversations most definitely would would come up in that school with those students. And I'm going to help the teachers think of ways that they can respectfully address the concerns that the students might bring to the table. 
I'd like to remind our listeners that we are talking to Robin Wildman, a public school teacher who has incorporated in some really dynamic and very successful ways the principles of Kingian nonviolence into her teaching practices, has developed a curriculum for this, and trains teachers who are willing to come to Rhode Island to train with her in these principles and and teaches them how to bring them back into her classroom. Robin, can you just offer us a few words as we're getting ready to close the show to let people know what they might be able to do on their own in their classrooms or in their own lives to bring some of these principles into the picture? What I would say is I would reach out to people such as myself or other local folks who have knowledge about nonviolence and start investigating and reading. Just do some reading on your own about how conflict can be solved nonviolently and maybe just starting small with bringing that into your classroom. And what I would like to say is that along with learning how to solve conflict is teaching students the reason why we should solve conflict. It's not just about having skills to solve conflict. It's understanding that we're all connected and we're all part of the same community. And in order to make the community function, we need to be able to process conflict together. And I think that if people connected those two pieces in their classrooms, then their classrooms would be peaceful communities. Robin, give the listeners just one more time the website or information where they can get a hold of the training coming up in June or how they can contact you. Yes, my email is Robin E. Wildman, R-O-B-I-N-E-W-I-L-D-M-A-N at gmail.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's show of Love and Revolution Radio. It's always incredibly inspiring to me, incredibly hope-inducing to hear a story like this and to hear about one of the practical realities that exists in our world. I always say this on the show, people have heard me say it a thousand times, that for every problem we're facing in our society, there is a viable alternative solution that is truly heartwarming and invigorating. And this it goes in my little checklist of those solutions. And I just want to thank you for your courageous pioneering of integrating Kingian nonviolence into the public schools. And I really wish you the best of luck and wish you thousands and thousands of teachers contacting you. Well, thank you so much, Sherry and Rivera. It was so nice talking with you. Thank you, Robin. You're an incredible inspiration to us all. Thanks this week to our guest, Robin Wildman, and to my illuminous co-host, Rivera Sun. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, with words and music by Diane Patterson, is performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And thanks to my co-host, Sherry Mitchell, for always digging deeper in the subject than you knew the subject even went. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly program, and you can find it on your local radio station if you go there and ask them to broadcast it. You can also find more of Sherry's wonderful thoughts and insights on her Sacred Instructions Facebook page. 
And you can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on my website, www.riverasun.com. And we are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podomatic. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Sherry Mitchell. Robin has provided us some valuable insights on bringing principles of nonviolence into the classroom. Maybe you'll take time to consider how you can incorporate these principles into your life by the time we talk to you next week. (music) 